Before we start, the following story uh, contains a moment or two that's uh, pretty intense and may not be suitable for young kids. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. Yeah, so Peter. Yeah. Matt. Yeah. Where do you want to launch into this? Uh, yeah, we're going to start with this um, call. Tuesday, August 8, 2017. This is a call from Bath County, Eastern Kentucky. 13, 50, 1 and 26 seconds. It's a call from dispatch to the Bath County EMS station. These are the people that are dispatched to medical emergencies. Best I can remember, it was like 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, something like that. Tones went off for a uh, unresponsive male. All right, so that's Scotty Whiteman. Yep. The other voices, JFO. We're partners in the EMS service in Bath County, Kentucky. Anyway, call comes in. First one of the day. Scotty and Jay hop in their ambulance, and they rush over to this apartment complex. Uh, they'd been there before. It's this sort of squat, two-story building. Like a strip mall almost. When we get there, jump out, put the gloves on, enter this small apartment. And immediately when they come in, off to the left is the living room. Law enforcement's there. The chief of police was there talking to the two people that were alert in the house. A woman and a guy who are sitting on a couch. And then if you look immediately to the right, it's just like the kitchen is there. And that's where Scotty and JC lying on his back with his arms to his side. A guy in his mid-50s. Completely unresponsive. He was laying in water about three inches deep where I guess somebody in the house had taken the sprayer from the kitchen sink and had sprayed him down. Trying to revive the guy. Bring him back to life. And it doesn't happen that way. So, so Jane Scotty entered the kitchen, stand over this guy. He hadn't started turning blue yet. So I checked him to make sure he was breathing. And he was. But barely. He's taking these really low, shallow breaths. And then I pulled his eyelids back and checked his pupils. They're tiny, pinpoints. He was overdosed. Pretty indicative of opiates. So I said, okay. So Jay grabs his medic kit. He goes into his bag and he pulls out this nasal spray. It's a drug called naloxone. It's also commonly referred to as Narcan. And it's a drug that's that's known as being this Lazarus drug. Yeah, because it immediately throws an opioid overdose into reverse and like brings people back from the brink of death. So Jay crouches over this guy and he takes this nasal spray, sticks it up one of the guy's nostrils, sprays it, takes it out, waits a beat, does the same thing to the other nostril. Back awake. Within seconds. The guy opened his eyes. Talk, what's going on? I grab a towel and start drying him off. And then I pushed him up so I could sit him up. Got him up. Got him onto the stretcher. Loaded in a truck. And we take off to St. Clair Hospital. Scotty's up front. He's driving the ambulance. Jay's in the back with the patient. Everything was good with him. Everything was routine. When all of a sudden... Scotty hollered through the window. He yelled at me, I don't feel right. I can remember a weird taste coming into my mouth and a real odd smell hitting my nose. What are you tasting? I can't describe it. It was just, it was like chewing on steel. Go ahead. Scotty, while he's driving, he gets on the radio. 
hollering at the next county over, saying, hey, I need help. I've got a light feeling, uh, increased uh, temperature. I need you to send me an ambulance. On the eastbound exit ramp of the 137, uh, just have them meet us there, please. 10-4. Made it to the bottom of the ramp with the truck in park. Jay jumped out of the back and ran up to the front. Went through the passenger side. Got to Scotty. He was already slumped over. Unresponsive. It was that quick. Like he was out cold. Huh. Not waking up anything? No, no, he's not responding at all. So what's what's happening? Well, this is like, this is the thing that, I don't know, was so shocking to me, is that when Jay then checked out Scotty. He had pinpoint pupils, snoring respirations. He seemed to have the exact same symptoms as the patient in the back of the ambulance who had overdosed. Wait, what? The exact same symptoms? Yeah, that's what it looked like to Jay. Well, how can, how does that even happen? Well, so, um... So Jay explained it to us like uh, they – he says if you wind back, they had gone into this apartment to treat this guy who was on the kitchen floor. That was wet. And he said he believes that when they were helping him up – Scotty had rubbed against his skin-to-skin -skin contact with his forearm. And Jay said he believes that what likely happened in that moment is that whatever drug this guy had taken had now gotten onto Scotty's arm – absorbed through his skin into his system and then like 15 minutes later had caused scotty to pass out wow that's that's really strange yeah it seems like a really unusual thing to happen but the thing is like i guess what's even weirder is that like this wasn't the first time i had heard this story right like peter's been following this for a while so yeah i've been keeping a list of these types of incidents and what i found is this wasn't an isolated incident. These types of things are happening a lot. And now at six, EMTs in danger. There have been cases reported in North Carolina, Florida. Where a police officer nearly died. Rural Ohio, rural Pennsylvania. From an accidental drug overdose. West Virginia. Three police officers in southeast Wisconsin. Texas, California. Rushed to the hospital. Two EMTs. Massachusetts. Taken to the hospital. All right, breaking news in Providence. Vermont, New Hampshire. Two police officers are hospitalized. Nebraska. Three EMTs and an officer went to the hospital. So a deputy went to the hospital overnight. The officer was responding to an overdose. There's been over 100 reported incidents all over the country. So, I mean, I'd, I've been reporting on opioids for, for a number of years, and I guess as I was watching these these kinds of incidents occur, I, like, it kind of felt like I was watching a, a contagion uh, like unfold in real time. Hmm. I mean, I, I guess when I was reading all these stories, I, w I was just thinking, like, what is going on here? Like, what's happening? I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. Today, we have a story about what happened that day in that apartment, in that ambulance in Kentucky. Definitely kind of a mystery story. But at its core... It's really a story about, about wanting to do good, choosing to do good, and then having to suddenly bear the cost of doing good. Okay. The story comes to us from Peter Smith, freelance journalist, and it also was co-reported by... Peter! Our producer, Matt Kilty. Hey, everybody. Okay, so... So... so. Kentucky. Kentucky. 
So we wanted to talk to Scotty and his partner, Jay, about what happened that day. And about what's been happening. So we flew into Lexington. We drove about an hour east. And it was some nice rolling bluegrass uh, hills. Yeah, a lot of green. And we drove to this tiny little city called Owingsville. Uh, and we're at the Bath County Emergency Medical Services. Where the Bath County EMS is. White building, linoleum siding, big garage doors like you'd see at like an auto shop. A couple big white Bath County EMS ambulances. It's funny, there's a washer-dryer, uh, ashtray on top of it. And attached to the garage is a one-story house, basically. So we essentially just showed up at this place to introduce ourselves and say, hey. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, there were a few people inside. Gary, the director of the station, was there. Yeah. And you're serving the whole county? Yeah, I think it's... 284 square miles, I think, is how big our county is. You know about how many people that is? Uh, a little over 12,000 now, I believe. And we're covering that out of one station. Feels like th- th- there's beds in the back? Yeah, beds in the back, yeah. You all end up just kind of like living here? Yeah, it's basically like an apartment. There's a kitchen. We were in the living room with Gary sitting on uh, a couch. There's these big uh, lazy boys, a ginormous TV. Billy Bob Thorne was on. He's a mean dude. In the show? No, he's just a mean dude in real life. Remember that? We, we went to a Willie Nelson concert, and his band opened for Willie Nelson, and somebody in the uh, audience heckled him. And he just about came off the stage after him, and he called him everything but a soul machine and a milk cow. I've, I, I mean, I've, he made up cuss words. Yeah, he's a, he's a wiry little feller. So we were kind of just hanging around with Gary. It was probably like 15 minutes, and then... There's Scotty. Scotty walked in. That's Peter Smith. Nice to meet you. Matt, guilty. How you guys doing? This is the EMT who overdosed? Yeah, Scotty's the guy that supposedly overdosed. He's in his 50s, white hair, tall. Got bright blue eyes. How did you even find <laughs> out about all of this? I read in the New York Times. There was one line in the story about three EMS personnel. I don't know if that's the true story. Yeah, true. pretty much, yeah. Picked up on the story. Yeah. yeah. And so then I I thought there was something unusual about that, and I was curious to hear the real story. Yeah, give me just a few minutes and... and yeah, yeah, no rush. And no rush sit down and, and discuss things. And All right. So eventually it was just the three of us in this living room. You want to set up the table, or...? Uh, I, was I mean, maybe I should preface this by saying that you can't really understand this story unless you understand a little bit about what EMS personnel do. I talked to some other EMTs that told me that everybody has their why. Everybody has this thing they say. It's like, this is the reason I got into this line of business. I would say like a very small percentage, like don't have second or third jobs. Like they don't make a lot of money. So everybody has this why. Yeah, maybe you can just like tell. And so I asked Scotty what his why was. And he told me this story. And I think it's a really incredible story that not only explains why he does what he does, but it also explained, like, why he holds on to certain things. So in September of 1999, I was involved in an accident on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. So it was early in the morning. It was raining. Yeah, it was during Hurricane Floyd. He was out there for work? Cross-country trucking. What kind of a uh, rig were you driving? It was a Freightliner, and I was pulling a flatbed trailer with a load of pipe on it. So he's barreling down the Turnpike with this heavy load of steel on the back, and with the weather, like, visibility starts to get 
bad. Slowed my speed way down, probably running approximately 50, 55 mile an hour. And he comes through this construction site. And something happened in the front end of the truck. You heard a pop. A front tire had blown out, and I basically became a passenger at that point. There was no control in it. His 18-wheeler was, like, careening out of control down the turnpike, and it is, like, skidding across the wet pavement. And the truck lunged to the right. There was a concrete wall there that had guardrail attached to it. It nosed into the guardrail. Came flying back across both lanes. Back toward the center divider, and the truck hit it. Plowed through the center divider. And began to, like, roll over. And came down and struck a vehicle that was traveling the other direction. Scotty says he doesn't remember much of what happened next, other than his truck finally coming to a stop. After that, the next thing I remember was standing on the frame of the truck, watching diesel fuel run underneath of me, and I could hear the truck burning. Somehow he he managed to get out of the cab, and he's standing on this tail of the, the cab, and the truck is on fire. And, like, while he's standing there, like, other people who were driving down the highway have stopped, and they've started to, like, yell at him. Screaming at me to get away from the truck. I got off the truck, and I looked up the road, and I saw the other vehicle, and and I knew then that it wasn't good. It, what did it look like? It was, it was, it was a very destroyed vehicle. So, wait, what happens next? Uh, there was a lady had a minivan. I have no idea where she came from. Uh, she opened the side door on her minivan and had me set in the floorboard until the ambulance got there. I remember looking down at my left hand and the back of my left hand, all the skin was probably hanging down eight, 10, 12 inches where it had melted the skin. And like your skin's just dangling off your body. Yeah. I can remember when the ambulance getting there and there was a a female paramedic. And when she walked up and looked at me, I remember her going, oh, my God. And I went, this ain't good, is it? And she said, no. She didn't lie to me. She said, no, it's not good. He got rushed to a hospital. He had five broken ribs, massive skin burns. I do remember him telling me, you're going to lose your left hand. And I told him, I said, that's not an option. I'm left-handed. Surgeons immediately started doing skin grafts. Took skin off my legs and put on my arms and and my back. As you can see, I've still got my left hand. Still left-handed? I'm still left-handed. And um, when uh, you said it was a couple days after the accident when they told you about the other car? Yeah. How did that conversation unfold? It was an attorney that... uh, was for the representing the trucking company that I was driving for, was the one that actually told me about the fatalities that had been involved with the accident. So that was how I found out. Do you remember what exactly happened? I just remember him walking into the hospital room and he's like, hi, my like name is, sort of yeah, and my name's so-and-so and I'm with, uh, I'm an attorney with representing company that you drive for and uh, we don't know if you've been informed of this or not but there was three fatalities involved and no I hadn't been informed but yes I have been now when when we started into court proceedings that was when I found out names and and where they were from uh where were they from? They were from Connecticut. Uh, they had been on vacation in North Carolina. 
the hurricane coming in. They were evacuated out of North Carolina. So they had decided that they were uh, going to travel up into Pennsylvania and uh, try to, to find a place to finish their vacation in Pennsylvania. And you know, that's what put them there. If I'd have traveled two, two miles an hour faster or two miles an hour slower, we wouldn't have been at the same place at the same time. Scotty eventually went back to long haul trucking, but he says that he kept thinking about that day, about that accident, the, the people who were killed. Never forgot, still haven't forgotten. But the other thing that really struck him about that day was that Everybody who showed up to that scene, uh, the fire department, the EMS. Everybody there was was volunteer. And that's something he couldn't really shake. That people volunteered to come to me and they didn't know who I was. They didn't care who I was. They, they didn't pass judgment on me that, yeah, I was in a horrific accident and I may have been the, been the cause of that accident. They didn't care. They viewed me as someone that needed help. And that was all they viewed me as. And Scotty said the more he thought about it, the more he felt like he had this this sort of debt to pay back for the lives that were lost that day. For the ones that he that he extinguished. And the way that the way that he's gonna do that is become a volunteer. He's gonna become one of these people. Who help those in need. That comes to your aid no matter what. And as they say, you know, the rest is history. Here I am, I'm an EMT. <laughs> So we spent a few days with uh, Scotty following him around on on some of his runs. And as an EMT, uh, his main responsibility is to drive the ambulance, but also to assist his partner. Hello. Who's often Jay. And out in rural Kentucky, they get all sorts of calls. Here, honey, they just want to look at you. It's okay. You're okay. How long has he been acting like that, huh? Since last night. Okay. Like uh, a three-year-old who was having trouble breathing. Just breathe. It's okay. Look, look, look at my arm. It's okay. Mommy, go. A lot of calls from nursing homes. Deep breath. Does that hurt? Got him on six on nine. Where a call can be for something that feels like so small, like a cough or, or low blood sugar. Ready to go. Portable over to Maine. One night, 920 at night, got a call. Older woman fell off the porch. They helped pick up an elderly woman. Oh, good job. Good job. Sometimes they just get called to give people their beds. You're going to feel a big poke, okay? Count of three. Here we go. One, two, three. Big poke. These are like kind of like the everyday innocuous calls. And then, of course, like there are overdoses. By the way, I'm, uh, I'm Matt. I'm Earl. Earl. Nice to meet you. Peter. I'm Earl. Because we were like these out-of-town reporters, everybody kept saying that we should go down to the old jail. So you're the jailer? Yeah. yeah. Which is where we met the county jailer, Earl. How's it going, sir? How you doing there, bud? I'm Matt. And his friend Mitchell. Nice to meet you. Alrighty. And so... So Earl led us into the jail. It's abandoned now. Paint peeling off the walls. He walked us into this front room. Let's see, how many days few more than you got? It's full of weed whackers, lawnmowers. Earl oversees the work release program, so the people that are in jail are, are sort of on this temporary work release program where they, like, do lawn maintenance along the highway. Oh, I'll sit down. 
Where'd they got him at? <clears throat> oh, it's over there. I see it. Yeah. Over well, in the corner. And then Earl, Earl grabbed this red bucket, uh, which he set down. It's like a knee-high bucket. Pretty nasty. Oh my God. That's from this year. But you can see, that's just this year. That's so many syringes. How many do you think you got in there? I'd say there's a thousand, wouldn't you mention? Close anyway. Yeah, close to it. That was like all last year. Yeah. All last year. People on work release have been picking these up for like the past year. These are just like litter on the highway. Yeah. It's just, it's been awful. They used to have the kids, you know, would clean up like Boy Scouts and stuff, clean up long roads. But it just got too, too bad with the needles now. You just can't do it anymore with the way the needles and stuff are. Mm -mm. Yeah, it's all kinds of myrrh in that yeah, big bottle, ain't I forgot about the NBA. Yeah, or it'd be another bottle full. There's probably 20, 30 in there. Yeah. Here's another one. Mm. We got a problem here. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. <laughs> There's definitely a problem with, with heroin use. Someone's got it in it. Still got the stuff in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I still got the drugs in there. Blood too. Yeah. Huh. That first year we we really found them, didn't we? They threw a bunch of them away too before we started saving them. Yeah. Yeah. Did it, did it surprise you to find this many? Really? Yeah. Well, it just all want the heroin problem just started just like overnight here. I mean, it was pills forever, and then and then just all at once. I mean, nobody even ever seen a needle, did you, Mitch? Yeah. And then just all at once, they were everywhere. When 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 did you start seeing them? About. Year ago, uh, it's been it's been longer now. It's yeah, been about two, about two and a half, two two and a half years ago, and it just like and once it started, you started finding they were everywhere then. So what do you think when you see see all these needles? I just think it's it's a bad thing. It's 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 destroying families, and we have somebody dying here just all the time. I mean, it's it's really bad, sad. I've had a I had a very good friend that I lost. What was it, Mitchell? Back last August. Yeah. Somewhere along there. I had took him to rehab and he was in there for a couple months and he got out and done good and then and then that happened to him. And that was sort of the incredible thing. There's something for everyone here, so have your pick. All right, well, I'll take a look around. Okay. Was that like everybody knew somebody who had been caught up in using opioids? I mean, nice families, somebody in their family end up on a bad. Like, I went to a yard sale because I love yard sales. And every family is affected some way. When I told the women who were sitting there on the driveway what we were reporting on, they they said they had lost neighbors, friends. Well, let's put it like this. Uh, in 2000... You know, one day when we were down there, we had to take a lift. No, in 1990, I had a motorcycle accident, which uh, destroyed my left femur. I've got a 12-inch plate, 10 screws, and two pins that hold my left femur together. And the driver told us how he'd started using pills? And really came by quite quite innocently. I talked to a woman who worked at a thrift store who told me she lost a cousin to an overdose. Actually, Jay told us about a friend of his. He actually relapsed. He was in, he was in therapy. His uh, sponsor in uh, Narcotics Anonymous uh, overdosed. And he had nobody to go to, so he relapsed and was found two days later in his car. So it was pretty bad. And I, and I would I would assume that DMS Scotty and Jay would have seen this this shift happen. Yeah, Scotty told us around 2017 overdose calls went from one or two a week to five, six, one day. There was eleven. 
And that was just unheard of in this county. It just to have that many overdoses. They told us they would treat the same person like five times over a few months. Like this is just their job. Right. They're there to save people's lives. But this overdose problem and the sort of like moral calculus that any EMS person makes when they show up to help a person who who is OD'd, it started to shift when reports started emerging about this new drug. This drug that made it so simply coming into contact with a person, like just simply touching them, could put an EMS worker in danger. Wasn't a lot known about it. We talked to this guy, Jason York, about it. He's the emergency management director for the county. Uh, when it first it came out, the reports that we were getting was, was literally airborne. Have you ever seen it? No. What do you think, like, just hearing about it? I mean, what's going through your mind when you hear about it? World War Z, Walking Dead. The drug is called fentanyl. What is fentanyl? Like, I know that it's an opioid, but is it like... So, so fentanyl... Didn't you talk to a guy about this a while back? I did. I talked to this guy, John Cole. Okay. Can you tell me again, like, who you are and... Yeah. I'm an emergency physician uh, here at Hennepin County Medical Center, uh, which is a level one trauma center in Minneapolis. He's also the director of the Minnesota Poison Control. So fentanyl. So fentanyl has been around for decades and... Um, we use it almost every day in my hospital in some capacity. So fentanyl is an opioid. It's fully synthetic. It's manufactured in the laboratory. And it often comes in powder form. But uh, drug companies reformulated it into all sorts of things like fentanyl lollipops. Hmm. And these lollipops are given to, to sh- soldiers on the battlefield. There's also fentanyl patches. That people wear to get fentanyl into their body through their skin. Oh, so you can you can do fentanyl through the skin. Yeah. It's an easy way to put something on for people with really bad chronic pain. People with cancer, for instance, use them. It's just this really, really effective painkiller. Because fentanyl is really, really potent. I mean, a lot of people refer to fentanyl as sort of the third wave of the opioid crisis. Just for context, I mean, what are the first two waves? Uh, yeah, well, so if you go back to the beginning of the crisis... The first wave was pills. Right. When uh, in the early 2000s, drug manufacturers began flooding communities with pharmaceutical-grade opioids. Okay. And the second wave was around 2011 when there was a crackdown on pills. And so a lot of people that were, were using pharmaceuticals began to migrate to heroin. And the Mexican cartels got very good at delivering that heroin. And then... Around 2013... Opioid crisis. Over the third wave hits. America's worst drug crisis ever drug dealers, people that were selling heroin, uh, start looking to fentanyl. Because fentanyl is so much cheaper to either make or obtain than normal heroin. And most importantly, fentanyl is way more potent. And so basically, to, to maximize their profit, drug dealers start cutting fentanyl into heroin. The problem is that the people who are using, they really have no idea what they're getting. They think they're just getting heroin. And certainly by 2014, we started to see patients in our emergency department who were overdosed with what they thought was heroin that probably turned out to be fentanyl. And as more and more people were overdosing, fentanyl, dying, a powerful synthetic opioid. There were all these news stories about a powerful opioid, this fentanyl, powerful, ultra potent synthetic opioid, 30 to 50 times as powerful as heroin itself. And there are versions of it where, you know, the molecules changed a little bit and it makes it more potent. And by 2016, an even more dangerous drug is now hitting the street. It's called carfentanyl. It's a new synthetic opioid usually used to tranquilize elephants. Now, this dead 
deadly drug is popping up in our backyards. And carfentanil is extremely potent. The same size as just seven grains of salt could kill you. John says it was right around this time, 2016. There started to be reports of... I fall backwards. Law enforcement. And I'm trying to, trying to hold on to anything I can grasp. Emergency medical services. Uh, my face started uh, burning. And even nurses in hospitals. Like I, I broke out in, in a sweat. Describing getting ill when they were exposed to powder that turned out later to be fentanyl or some other type of fentanyl. How did you first hear about it? How did I hear about it? You guys, the media. Oh, yeah, I forget. I forget. I'm a, I'm a representative of the media. <laughs> Scotty said he actually yeah. first heard about carfentanil in Good Morning America. Started reading articles on it. Jay saw other people in EMS tweeting about it. You know, what is this drug? What is going on? But that's in the big city. It's not going to happen here. And then one of our local law enforcement officers, Bud Lyons. So you read about... Um, yeah, fentanyl. I mean, I've read about it, but I didn't think it would come to a small city like this. So that's Bud Lyons. He's a police officer. He's a canine officer here. What? So what happened? Uh, basically, I was dispatched to the funeral home. So it was the summer of 2017. Bud got called out to the parking lot of the funeral home. A female had passed out in her car. When I got on scene, woke her up, got her out of the vehicle. She noticed that she had some brown stuff on her face, like a powder substance around her nostrils. He searched the car and took into evidence $1,000 in cash. And several little baggies of brown powder substance that turned out to be heroin. And that same night, as he was, like, back in the evidence room going through through the money. I didn't have no gloves on when I was counting the money. Started feeling funny. Started feeling real dizzy. Couldn't think straight. Dropped the money. And drove his cruiser up here into the parking lot of the EMS station. And when he pulled in, he went down. A couple of EMS were there, gave him this, this Lazarus drug, Narcan. Rushed me to the hospital. Had that ever happened to you before? No. It's the first time it's ever happened. And, uh, you know, just that little touch basically almost killed me. Just a grain of fentanyl got on his skin and he's saying that's all it took? Yeah, like that was that was the story that was starting to emerge really across the country that like a tiny grain, if you came into contact with, with a tiny grain of this drug, it, it could take you down. So as soon as that happened, Scotty, we made it a pact between us to carry extra Narcan in the truck for us in case we ever got exposed because I knew it was here in the county and in the city. And then about a month after that, sure enough. Chewing on steel with the truck in park. My partner got exposed. I can remember coming to and being in another ambulance. Jay had given Scotty their Narcan they had stashed away. His dose of Narcan and mine because he wouldn't wake up after the first dose. They got him to the hospital. Scotty was kept under evaluation for about four hours. And then eventually discharged. The next day, it was like, that was when it hit on the fact of, you know what, I almost died doing my job. And that's essentially when what began as a call for help became a crime scene. What do you, what do you mean? I will tell you in a minute, after the break. Hi, this is Heidi calling from Nashville, Tennessee. 
Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Chad. Robert, Radiolab. Back to Peter and Matt. In Kentucky. Starts right now at Cartown Kid. Let's get on. He was on the show years back. Freedom from fear and all of its Something that I kept thinking about when we were down there in Kentucky driving around was that there is, like, no duty to render aid. Even though there are some exceptions and statutes in some states, like, for the most part, there's just no obligation. We live in a society where you, like, do not... You can sort of watch a person drown, and you won't be held liable. You can do that. And that's legal. I just kept thinking about that. We've mostly just been here. So when we were down there with Earl the jailer. Yeah, in the jail, the old Bath County jail. We had just seen the needles and we were coming out to the parking lot. I go to Wisconsin. And we had spent probably like two or three days trying to find the people who were actually in the apartment. Like the person who overdosed and the other two people who uh, we learned lived in that apartment. I had a phone number, but nobody was picking up. But we're with Earl. And I just asked him if he knew this guy, Scotty Hatton. Scotty White. This is a different Scotty. This is a different Scotty. Right, because Scotty Whiteman's the EMT who responded to the call, had this seemingly like overdose exposure. Scotty Hatton lived in the apartment. Yeah, he was there the day that Scotty and Jay showed up. Yeah, I know him. Uh What, do y'all want to talk to him or? Yeah, we just, I mean, we got the Scotty Whiteman started the story, and we were just curious if... What do you want to talk to him about? What what went on that night, or... Just get his side of the story. I know I, that. I don't that. think that he could right now, because his case ain't final. Uh-huh. Sure. I, I, I just about guarantee you won't. But then he was like, uh, I can tell you where he is, though, because it turns out that Scotty Hatton had on an ankle monitor, and Earl, you know, he's the jailer, so he just, like, pulls up his phone and looks up Scotty's GPS location. Yeah, and so the, the little the little dot for the GPS showed exactly where he was at this old cemetery. That graveyard's what, Mitchell? And Earl said, like, we could go down there and, like, maybe he would talk to us. So we get there, pretty big and sprawling cemetery that was, like, 25 minutes out of town. Like that. Yeah, lots of big trees, cicadas. Anyway, Scotty was actually out on this uh, riding lawnmower, and we were standing there talking to his supervisor. Right. And then Scotty himself, like, gets off the lawnmower, comes over to us. What did he look like? Sunken eyes, um, big eyes. Pretty skinny guy. He's wearing, like, a blue Duke ball cap. Blue jeans. So Scotty came over. Uh, his supervisor just went on the lawnmower and started riding around. And Scotty... <laughs> immediately started talking. It seemed like he wanted to tell his side of the story. He said he got sick. I'm looking online. It's like sometimes you can take 24 hours. 
hours. And he was standing under this big oak tree, uh, kind of like on a steep slope. Ugh, sorry, mine. <laughs> you mind? Uh, I just I missed the back or the front of that. You're saying uh, that you, you you think it's doubtful? I think it's very doubtful. And he immediately started telling us that he was like suspicious of Scotty Whiteman's story, this whole like overdose by touch thing. I mean, because. He he only touched the, my other co-defendant, you know, and, and I had washed him off. You know, I didn't know you're not supposed to wash someone that's overdosing off, but I did. And uh, this guy's trying to say he got, infect, you know, got affected by car fentanyl. And they didn't even find any drugs on the scene. They found um, very little paraphernalia. But I know I'm done. It's just one of those things. I'm going to church now. As soon as I get this ankle monitor off, I'm going to get saved. I can't get saved and with thank modern you can't submerge it where are you going to get baptized um i go to freedom church in uh, mount sterling probably gonna ask them be in front of a bunch of people and make me kind of nervous we decided to meet up with him later because of the lawnmower cicadas uh, so we went to his aunt's house what? he was living there he got evicted from his apartment after the od well i'm going love you love you too you're going to see Ruby, ain't you? Yeah. It's nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you, you know, too. Thanks again. I'll lay in there. She, I don't know if she really wants to participate, so. <laughs> you just was in here, you Yeah. Oh, okay. So apparently Scotty's girlfriend, uh, Jessica, she was the other person in the apartment for this overdose. She was also now living with Scotty at his aunt's, but she didn't want to talk to us. So then the three of us sat down on the couch in the living room, and Scotty just started telling us about his own story. And I think his story definitely has, is a very, like, sort of common trajectory. Where, like, where did you grow up? Was it around here? Yeah, I grew up in Bath County. I've been here my whole life, pretty much. So Scotty grew up in government housing uh, in a small apartment with his sister, his mom. She had another husband by then, not my dad. He's my stepdad. His stepdad is this guy named Ricky. Who figures pretty prominently in this story. He drank a lot. Wasn't that good a, wasn't that all that good at home. Then I was like... 15, 16, I moved in with my grandma and lived with my dad and my grandma. And I was into sports. I made decent grades. Now I don't even hardly go see my dad. He caught him a case, I guess. He's got several charges pending. So when was the first time you, you used? Um, first time I ever took narcotics. I was 19. According to Scotty, what happened was he got kidney stones. Never had a pain worse than that. Hurt so bad I was crying. He mentioned it to his dad. He had a motorcycle wreck, kind of messed him up. You know, he just you know, said, here, you know, you can take one of my pain pills. It was a Lortab, which is hydrocodone and acetaminophen. Yeah, he said when he took it. Euphoria. Felt just total relief. But I just like the feeling, you know. It makes you feel really, really good. Not long after that. Getting his medicine, I ain't gonna lie, and I'd take it. You know, take two or three. Or, and then it just, you know, got to experiment more and more. Started using Perk 30s, which are definitely flooding into places like Kentucky in the, the early 2000s. So this is like the sort of first wave of the, the opioid crisis. So Scotty said at first he would get pills from friends, people at work. And then it just, you know, got to, well, you know, I started buying pills. And When do you feel like it? crossed over from um probably my mid-20s he started taking oxycotton and he said he was working at the time stocking bread right he was stocking bread he was also working in a factory because i'd be like well i'd rather work because i'd steal off somebody and i've always been that way i don't really want to steal off people so you're like i can work and make enough money to it was really hard i mean i made five six hundred dollars a week and 
you know, I wouldn't have any left. Because he had spent all of it on on pills. And he was doing that for years, and probably, um, it was about like 2011 or 12. No, heroin came around, that's when I started doing it. Because it was cheaper, or? Because it was cheaper, because I was spending 80 to $100 on two pills. 80 to 100 for just two pills? Just two pills. And, you know, you might get a little bit high, and it might not last very long at all, and you know, for 80 or $100 heroin, you can get a lot more, and it's a lot more powerful. So that it, it just made sense. Scotty told us he he did heroin for like five or six years. He didn't inject it, but he would he would snort it. And he says he tried to quit a couple of times, but just didn't. Which was probably just an excuse for I couldn't. I had to hit rock, complete rock bottom. And for Scotty, he says that was the day of the overdoses in that apartment. Yeah. Can you pick up at some point? Like where where did where does it start? Um, you're probably gonna have to ask me like questions on this because I'm going to may shy back from some of it a little bit so uh, ask me again what you yeah 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 so and you're living down there with Jessica and your son Gabriel so Jessica Scotty's girlfriend the two of them have a son together Gabriel mm-hmm. and it's her apartment mm-hmm. and at some point Ricky is with you guys again Ricky is his stepdad they're like why is he over there that day well I mean he's burned all his bridges from what we learned, it sounds like he was last living with friends and, like, they had a falling out. Yeah, it seemed like everybody else had sort of given up on him. We felt sorry for him. He didn't have nowhere to go. So, you know, you can stay here a couple days. I mean, that was it. And then, um, like, I don't know, where would you start with that day? Um, really don't know where to go with this. It's <laughs> <laughs> fine. I'm trying to not, you know, right. save right I think I think last time we spoke, it was like uh, at some point you noticed Ricky. I, I can go from there probably a little sure. bit. Um, you know, I was in so Scotty explained to us that he and Jessica were in the living room of the apartment, sitting on the couch, and that at some point Ricky had gotten up and gone into the kitchen. And after a little while, Scotty realized that the kitchen sink, the water in the kitchen sink, had been running. For a while and i'm like why is the water running you know so i go in there goes into the kitchen and sees ricky standing over the kitchen sink and he said he looked locked up frozen like like his arms were really stiff his fists were sort of like clenched bracing grabbing the countertop with his tongue plopping back and forth in his mouth you can kind of his mouth barely open you can see it i, I kind of knew what it probably was he's ODing. i get a chair and i get him it, i struggle to get him in it i get him in the chair and I, he's out we have one of those, not only a faucet, we got one of those spray things. I was spraying oh, with sprays for the dishes. Yeah, I was spraying with cold water. I was thinking, well, you know, it might wake him up. I'm washing him in the face, and I did smack him in the face a few times. He just he wouldn't wake up. So then I knew we had to make the decision to call the the ambulance service. What happens next? I started getting a little bit, you know out of it I guess I don't remember a lot after that so, I, so I've listened to the 911 call and and Scotty didn't really tell us this and I don't know I mean it's not that I don't believe him but I do think that there was something I do think that they sort of like in that moment they must have been a little like what what do we do next Tuesday August 8 2017 because the thing is they weren't the first ones to call 911 that day 
911. First person that called was actually Ricky's brother. Yeah, this is Ronnie from Salt Lake. Uh, I just got a phone call. My brother has OD'd at uh, Bernard Heights. Which means someone must have called Ricky's brother, told him what was going on. They didn't know what to do. Because when he calls, he says something like, They're scared to call because they don't think somebody's got warrants and shit on them up there and they're going to let him wear and die. Something about outstanding warrants or like they're worried about outstanding warrants. Yeah, they're trying to throw him in a car and shit. Don't know the apartment number. No, sir, they won't tell me. Okay, I'll try. I'll give you answers to they can find it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye. Here you go. And then another thing you hear in these recordings which is from one of Scotty and Jessica's neighbors. Well, my neighbors came over a few minutes ago. And, and I think she's talking about Scotty, is that Scotty had come over to her house. And uh, he told me that his stepdad was currently overdosing in his apartment and that they were scared to call the ambulance. She made him leave. Because he was severely intoxicated on drugs. And from reading the reports, it sounds like their one-year-old son was in the apartment at the time. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, their one-year-old Gabriel. I think they were worried about the police coming and, and losing custody of their kid. Mm. And so, so like, for them, in that moment, when, when Ricky was lying on the floor, I think there were some questions in their mind, like, what's the right thing to do? And how do we, how do, we do the right thing without getting ourselves in trouble? But Back on dispatch. they did make the call. Yes, I need an ambulance to Bernard Heights, apartment 301. Jessica calls 911. It was two minutes after Ricky's brother made that first call. Okay, what's going on? Um, Is it overdose? Yeah, I believe so. Okay. And I believe one of the reasons that they made the call that day was because they knew about this law. I didn't know exactly what it said. I did know that it... It came in my mind, yeah, we'll be okay. A law that was designed to protect people in exactly this situation. The Good Samaritan Law. It's called the Good Samaritan Law. It was developed because we want to protect people who care about other people. So around 2010, 2011, 12, as this um, opioid epidemic was escalating, House File 238, the Good Samaritan Bill, a lot of states started adopting these 911 Good Samaritan laws. 46 states, including Kentucky, now have these laws. Which essentially say if you're using drugs with someone and that person overdoses, we don't want you fearful that if you make the call that may save their life, that you'll be in trouble. Like when the police show up, you and the person who overdosed won't be charged. You're granted immunity because you essentially did the right thing. Like you reached out for help. The sort of like intent of the Good Samaritan Law is to make people who are in the presence of a drug overdose, you want these people to call for for help because otherwise, you know, there's a greater risk that these people are just going to die. Hmm. Where does uh, where does the Good Samaritan... I mean, it is a Christian, it is a Christian parable, we got the, right? We got the Bible right here. So, um... Yeah, it's a it's a it's a parable in the Gospel of Luke. So it's Jesus is telling the story, and uh, so there's a, a a Jew. He's on the road to Jericho, and as he's walking along, some some robbers come and they they steal his money and they beat him up and they leave him in a ditch and they've essentially left him for dead. And then another person comes along the road, and but instead of helping him, this person like you know, crosses the road and, like, just keeps on walking. Second person comes by, same thing. And then a third person comes, and it's a Samaritan. And, like, the Jews and the Samaritans were, like, mortal enemies. Like, they they absolutely detested each other. But when the Samaritan sees this Jew lying in a ditch in need, 
the Good Samaritan stops and he helps helps this guy and gives him money and shelter and and treats his wounds and you know like essentially saves his life. So it's a story about like showing kindness to your enemy mm-hmm. or your enemy shine, showing kindness yeah, to you. Right. I guess the other thing that's interesting about this is that um, Jesus is talking to a, a legal scholar and. So it's sort of about setting up uh, like morality versus the law, and and so like what, I guess what he's saying is that if if you see somebody that's in need, you don't think about what the law says you should or shouldn't do. You you just you just help the person in need. It's like you know um, unconditional love like takes precedent over over the letter of the law. Like, but then of course there is the law, Ronnie. Those New York reporters are here to stick a microphone in your face. And what seems to be happening across the country is prosecutors are beginning to push back against the Good Samaritan. Good morning, guys. Thank you. So we talked to this guy, Ronnie Goldie. He's the Commonwealth attorney. He's also the lead prosecutor in the case against Ricky, Jessica, and Scotty. It's kind of weird that you guys got got this from out of New York, and it's just not something that, that I would have expected, certainly, because, you know, we, we're used to our own little problems down here, and I would assume you've got bigger problems in New York to deal with than than what we were dealing with, but that's fine. I mean, I'm glad that you guys yeah, no, it seems like got down this way. So what did he uh, say to you about so, the so case? As Ronnie sort of explained it to us. You go back with our legislature and, and the way they, they have drafted the um, Good Samaritan law. The way the law is written in Kentucky is that if you call 911 for a drug overdose, you're only granted immunity for two specific types of charges. You cannot charge them with possession of controlled substance. Drug possession. Or possession of drug paraphernalia. Drug paraphernalia. Just those two charges. Well, we didn't charge them with possession. We charged them with one endangerment. And this is where you see this sort of pushback. One endangerment, that's, that's a legal term for when you do something that puts somebody at risk for, for physical injury or, or death. It's a conscious disregard for... What could could occur? It's like driving drunk. So in this situation, so by adding the drugs everywhere that were laced with with fentanyl, you created a risk number one of the child um, being seriously injured or killed based on an overdose or or other injuries, and then also you placed paramedics, law enforcement, and the social workers that would have to come in under that that circumstance. So rather than granting Scotty, Ricky, and Jessica protection, Ronnie Goldie, Commonwealth of Kentucky, has charged them with 10 counts of felony one endangerment. So each one of them are getting hit with 10 felony charges. Whoa. Why 10? So there was one charge for endangering the child. So, like, the the, the one-year-old could have gotten into the drug somehow and and become exposed that way. And then there was one additional... There were nine additional charges, one for each of the, the people that came to the house that day, the, the police, the social workers, and all the EMS that responded. And I, I think we should say here that, that Jessica, who's now facing these 10 felony charges, the day of the overdose, she actually tested negative for opiates. Right, and their, and their kid checked out okay, too. But I think she's, she's now facing these charges because essentially she, she made that call. She was, like, in the apartment and made the call. The other thing to mention is that, like, the thing that she and Scotty were scared of, which was losing custody of, of their son, that, that did happen. I'm not mad about that. I understand that. I understand that aspect, you know. Drug stuff found in the home, you know, they took him. I understand that. As far as the other things, 10 felonies. 
I don't understand them. But Ronnie's argument is that because of the number of people who had been overdosing in the community, because of the local and national news reporting about heroin being laced with drugs like fentanyl and carfentanil, that you can argue... That's a risk that you knew was out there, but yet you're using anyway. You should know better. But, uh, it, so it feels like, I don't know, I don't know if loophole is the right word, but it's like it's a way in which you can still, as you've said, like you're precluded from bringing charges for possession and of drugs and paraphernalia, but like there is this sort of side door to be like, well... We can charge you for this. No, that's not the case at all. It's not like we're trying to say, okay, we don't like the Good Samaritan law. Let's go around it. I don't. I, that's not how I work. That's not how we work. This is the thing I don't really understand. It seems like the net effect of the Good Samaritan law is to sort of reduce fatalities, and it seems like the data I've seen is like it's rather successful in reducing fatalities. So you are by encouraging people to call nine one one, you are reducing fatalities. And in this case, if they hadn't called nine one one possible that the Rahimes, the patient, would have died. So in some ways, I feel like... Sure, I get it. I, and I totally understand it. I, I totally understand the, the reason behind it. But what I may think morally or personally, I don't have that luxury. I have a statute that I have to follow because when I took the oath of office, it is that I will uphold the laws of the Commonwealth. And if it's a crime, it's a crime. I don't get to say, well, but they were trying to do the right thing. If it's a crime, it is a crime and I have to pursue it. We actually, we talked to another prosecutor involved in this case. Okay. Kim Hunt Price. These people are She's the county attorney who indicted Ricky, Scotty, and Jessica. You know, you have people whose jobs are to protect the public who have to be there. You know, the message needs to go out there. These people ha- are protected as well. But there wasn't, like, pressure. People weren't calling you locally or there wasn't somebody from, like, the state. No, no. There was no like no one calling from the state or anything like that. I mean, I just had my local people, you know, that were concerned about it. And Was it the people who were there were calling you? or like? I kind of think one of them did call me, you know, and just say, is there anything we can do, you know, with regard to this? Is there an appropriate criminal charge? Uh, do you remember who that was off the top of your head? I um, believe Mr. Whiteman is who did. Okay, so... When we talked to Scotty Whiteman, we asked him essentially why was it that he wanted to see these people charged. I view it as a call for accountability. If they're doing heroin, we'll get out here and we'll roll around in the yard for a week. I have no issues with that. But when you do something that could cause harm to me, I've got a problem with that. I think, like, I, I understand that, but ultimately also feel like... uh that they truly didn't know that, like, this is a drug that somebody could, like, brush up against or something like that and potentially have a reaction, that there's just not enough knowledge there for them to have even 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 a sense of the fact that they could be endangering other people. Um, and then so to, to know that you had been through this experience with this accident, I always kind of felt like, oh, I'm just surprised that that you would it maybe extend to them a sort of like, I don't know if sympathy is the right word, but... I think that if you harm someone, you should be held accountable. Uh, you, know, you guys know now that I'm going on vacation, uh, you know, September the 16th is a, is a hard day. That's the anniversary of his truck accident where he killed three people. Is that, is that Sunday? Yes, because, yep. Yeah, Sunday. So Sunday I will uh, 
probably lock myself in a room away from everybody for the biggest part of the morning. If I'm scheduled to work on September the 16th, it's a day that I take off. From from the morning till noon is, is time for me to pay my respects to them. And even though you know, here we are coming up on you know, 19 years later, I still do that. And it's just... It's just my way of dealing with it, I guess. What do, you, what do you do in that moment when you're when you isolate yourself? It's one of those that I reflect on that morning, and I still try to figure out if there was anything that I could have done different that may have changed the outcome. What could I done me personally? Well, <clears throat> I still have nightmares. I still wake up in cold sweats. It just. I'm curious. Was you, you mentioned this yes, or not yesterday? I mean, last time we were here. That so initially, I think there was a there was a lawsuit filed by the family against the company, but then there was a civil suit that you had to go through. Um, that you said eventually bankrupted you. Mm-hmm. And what I'm wondering is like. Did you feel that was deserved? Do you feel like that was justified? Yes. Yes. I took three members of that family away from them. That took potential earnings away from that family. Uh birthdays and Christmases missed with those that were taken that day. So yeah, I, I feel that was very justified. I was held accountable for my actions of that morning. And then <clears throat> when you look at the exposure case, he needs to be accountable for those actions because he knew the risks that were involved. Right. Just as I think like getting behind the wheel of a truck, you know, on September 16th, 1999, you know, you know that there could be consequences, but you never, it's, that's why it's an accident, right? It's like the same thing. If he had taken like, I don't know, two, two milligrams less of the drug, it's like, those seem like really they seem like really similar situations almost, and I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, what's why is it hard to forgive him for that? I didn't say I didn't forgive him for it. It's just I think he needs to be held accountable for his actions. I mean, like, all of that sort of, like, brings us to the, the, the big question in the story. What happened that day? Because if we're going to hold Scotty Hatton accountable for what happened to Scotty Whiteman, you need to be able to show that the, the drugs in the apartment or, or whatever was on Ricky's skin, like, could actually cause him to overdose. Wait, do you have any... Do you have any reason to doubt that? Well, well the, the, the reason I found this story was it was reported as a credible report in the New York Times. Like, everybody sort of acknowledged that, 
you know, first responders were going down all across the country. So, but but when I talked to John Cole, the toxicologist from earlier, he said, "Well, I don't doubt any of the symptoms that any of these fire, EMS, and uh, police officers have experienced." He was skeptical. It's not a hundred percent clear if that's actually due to the fentanyl or to some other event that occurred in those moments. And John Cole wasn't alone. I mean, I, I started calling like uh, doctors and toxicologists, pharmacologists, and they said that like the risk that fentanyl posed to first responders was extremely low. Why? What was their uh, what was their thinking? Well, for one, I mean, like the the powder doesn't spontaneously aerosolize. It doesn't like poof into the air. So that makes like breathing it in pretty unlikely. And as far as the skin to skin contact thing, it's so poorly absorbed that the like substance itself doesn't pass through the skin easily. To get fentanyl to absorb through your skin, you have to use a special matrix to be able to. You know, really if you want to make a fentanyl patch, you have to sort of use these solvents to get the absorption to even be to the point where it's therapeutic let alone an overdose. Even if you put a fentanyl patch on, it takes it takes a very long time for the drug to sort of like achieve a meaningful dose in the body. But something is happening to these people. I mean, you have to assume. So if it's not the drugs, what is it? So, so yeah, what John Cole and, and a couple of other people brought up was this idea that maybe it wasn't the external situation that they're in. It was more, it was more something internal. There's no question in my mind that every one of these people uh, felt symptoms that are very real. But John said the and symptoms don't don't really match the symptoms of a typical opioid overdose. For instance, hyperventilating. On opioids, you're usually breathing slower. Not breathing faster. Or a lot of first responders reported feeling a sense of great impending doom. Opiates are all about serenity and pleasure, not impending doom. And so if you look at the symptoms and sort of the stories that are being told about these new substances and these new situations in our culture right now, he says... It, it kind of looks like a mass a mass panic. So there's a condition called mass psychogenic illness. That this is something that John Cole says he, he's actually come across in his work at the, the, the Minnesota Poison Control. There was a, a school event and a bunch of... Uh, he said that about four or five years ago, there was this incident at a public school in Minnesota where a bunch of kids started like keeling over because uh, they thought... Of, it was like carbon monoxide poisoning. Subsequent student after student began to feel ill. They took all these kids to the hospital and they, they gave them blood tests. None of the blood levels were positive for carbon monoxide. Just didn't check out. And once the medical conditions are, are ruled out from a, a known poison, you have to start considering other causes. And, and that event was consistent with a, this condition called mass psychogenic illness. And, and, and so when you think about you know, first responders showing up the scene of a, a drug overdose. And what's running through their mind is this, like, constant onslaught of, of news reports and other sort of anecdotal accounts they've heard about their 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 friends and their colleagues that are, you know, passing out. It, it, isn't, it isn't that anybody's crazy or weak. It's that their mind is causing them to be physically ill. They really are sick. But it isn't necessarily due to the thing that they believe that it is in the moment. Does that make sense? My response to that is... So we told Scotty what we knew, what these scientists had been saying. And, and Scotty says basically like, look, they, they can say whatever they want to in their labs, but this is what I went through. I just know the effects of that day, that I came in contact with something 
that put me in an overdosing situation. Ricky Mays. An inmate at the Clark County Detention Center, Kentucky. Charges for your call have been accepted. Hello. Hi, Ricky. This is Peter Smith. I'm a reporter. So I ended up sending a postcard to the jail because the jails don't accept uh, letters because they're afraid of drugs getting in. And a week later, I get a call from Ricky Mays. Ricky is Scotty's stepfather, and he's also the person who overdosed, who Scotty Whiteman treated. And he told me that there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of toxicology evidence or medical records or, or much of anything, really, but um, he had agreed to a plea deal for all 10 wants and endangerment charges. Yes, I pled guilty. That took three years. I mean, I was more or less forced. That's it. You, you said you were more or less forced? Yes. Because Ricky's a repeat felony offender, uh, he was looking at like 20 years instead of the three that he took. More or less, the message you're putting out there is if anybody ODs around you or anything like that, throw them in a ditch and, you know, leave them. That's huh? a message that the court system's putting out to people. That's the way I take it. And how how does that make you feel? I mean, is that... Ah, uh, not good. Yeah. I mean... Because it seems like if they didn't call you, we wouldn't be talking right now. Do what? I said if, 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 if they hadn't called 911 that day, like the Good Samaritan law sort of says you can, it doesn't seem like we'd be talk, yeah. talking right now. They've done the right thing. Yeah. They're more or less now they're paying for what they've done. Anything else you want to ask? I'm sorry, I just ramble on all day. Unlike Ricky, Scotty has refused to take a plea deal. Instead, he's going to risk up to 20 years in jail by taking his case to trial. I, I think about it every day. Every day at work for at least a couple hours, I, I think about and the same same answer comes up every day. I have to, I have to take it to trial. I mean, I don't I don't want them doing this to you know everybody, man. That that they're gonna be afraid to call nine one one. I feel like for me, like given the way it's gone, given the way people and how they think about drugs, like I I just I don't I don't know if I would have the same sort of like confidence or conviction. I understand where you're coming from. That's what my lawyer says too. I think when th- a few things come to light, you know, like they may say, well, he did get sick, or well, we're going to say, well, he didn't test positive for anything. Could it have been something else? Every little bit of doubt that you create is reasonable doubt. To, you know, And all you got to do is convince one person on that jury to say, no, nah, I'm not doing it. That's all you got to do. Obviously, the jury will be making uh, a decision about the case and about what happened in the apartment that day. But I think there's sort of a a bigger, sort of more consequential uh, message that they'll be sending about what people like Scotty and Scotty should believe and what they should fear and what they should do going forward. If these charges end up getting dismissed or um, if it goes to trial and and the, the people are found not guilty for one endangerment like how are you going to feel 
if they're found not guilty, then I'm going to trust in the judicial system that there was things that come to light that maybe I wasn't aware of. And if they're not found guilty, then you know, so be it. And if he goes out and uses again and I'm on shift when it happens and I walk in and see him, guess what? I'm going to treat him. My job is to do everything within my power to save his life. And that's what I'm going to do. And I asked the other Scotty, did you, do you, would you make the same call? Do you think other people would make the same call? If, like, if this is what's on the end of that call, potentially? They won't make the call. They'll try to, most people, depending on who they are, they'll try, probably try to just leave the person, drag him outside or something like that. You know, people in jail will say and do that. Or, or you know, cover up everything at the crime scene or whatever, you know. Or just not call, like I said. Uh, if I knew there would have been 10 felonies, man, I, I, I don't know, man. It's still got a call. The guy can't die. That's what I believe. I really believe that, man. When Scotty Haddon first got arrested for the wanton endangerment charges, he spent six months in jail. After getting out, he now attends church every Sunday with his family. What are you watching? Veggie, what? veggie tales? What tales? He and Jessica have partial custody uh, back of their son, Gabriel. You like veggie tales? What, what tales? That's a tomato. That's a tomato. Yeah, that's a tomato. That's a tomato. That's a cucumber. That's a... And both he and Jessica... Judge, I think at this point we probably need to... Go ahead and set a trial date out. Have pending trials scheduled for December. Peter Smith and Matt Kielty. Also, special thanks in this episode to Cecil Lawson and Jason York and Gary Bielert and all the EMTs and the medics who generously allowed us to go around and ride with them, see what they saw. Exactly. And uh, Todd Tout and John Sunderland, Chris Kipley, Dr. David Yerlink, Dr. Dan Cicerone, Fiona Thomas, Dr. Ken Williams, and Corey S. Davis. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is James Meehan from Denver, Colorado. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bresler, Rachel Kuzik, David Gabell, Bethel Habti, Tracy Hunt, Nora Keller, Matt Kilty, Robert Krolwich, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Sarah Curry, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Oliayi, W. Harry Fortuna, and Audrey Quinn. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris.